good morning, Austin Oaks Church, friends and family. Glad to see you on this Labor Day weekend. Uh, my name is Franziski, the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. And our heartbeat is to strive to be simply about Jesus because we believe that when you encounter him, it changes everything. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open it up and uh, join me in Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, we're going to be going through verses 16 through 34. And as you are getting there, I want to talk about one of my favorite cartoons growing up. I absolutely loved it. It is probably, now looking at it, hindsight, the most predictable story arc ever. It's the same thing that happens every episode over and over and over, but it never, ever got old. Anybody in this room, Popeye the Sailor Man fan, okay, loved Popeye. I didn't understand spinach. He made it look so good. Then I tried it. A liar. The, the storyline is always the same, right? So he, he has his girl, Olive Oil. Um, he, and when he's out with Olive Oil doing whatever they're doing, his nemesis, Brutus or Bluto, would try to win Olive Oil, but she had no time for him. And then Bruto, Bluto or Brutus would do what is never acceptable in any context or culture ever, would essentially kidnap Olive Oil. And Popeye, at that moment, he would get so moved, like he can't just be okay with that happening, that he has to move to attempt to rescue his girl, Olive Oil. And we know it's go time when he says the ever-infamous phrase, and some of you will know it, that's all I can stands and I can't stands no more. He couldn't sit back and just watch it happen. He couldn't be indifferent. Something provoked him on the inside that he had to move. That's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. He has to act. He can't be passive. He doesn't just wait and see what unfolds. He doesn't just simply pray about it and just kind of watch it all unfold in front of him. No, he moves into action. Have you ever had a spiritual Popeye moment? When was the last time your spirit was provoked? When maybe you saw this world and this culture and all the idols that are propped up and all of the things that people chase after, the things that people long for, when was the last time your spirit was provoked? When you see what's happening in our schools, when you see what's happening just everywhere, When was the last time your heart was broken over someone who doesn't know Jesus yet? When was the last time your spirit was so provoked that you moved towards people in compassion? When was the last time your spirit was provoked when you realized that the emerging generations are the most biblically illiterate generations that we have, and they don't have a clue about the beauty and the truth of Jesus, and they absolutely have no desire, no indication, or no need to ever step into the halls of a church? When was the last time your spirit was provoked? When was the last moment where you said, that's all I can stand? I can't stand no more. Maybe you've been provoked, but you just don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to engage with it. You don't know how to move towards people. Maybe you've been provoked, your spirit's been moved and rattled, but you're simply just too afraid to act on it. Or maybe you just never had that happen. I want to tell you something that I know is absolutely true. 
and it's absolutely inevitable. If you love Jesus and you strive to follow Jesus, your spirit will be provoked by the idols in our culture. If you love Jesus and you strive to follow Jesus, your spirit will be provoked by the idols in our culture. It's inevitable. And this provoking actually is really a clear indication. It's a clear sign of what God is trying to do inside of you. It's a clear invitation for you to join him on mission. Because otherwise our hearts wouldn't break for these things. It's his spirit that somehow starts to rattle our core. And we go, I have to do something about it. I have to move towards it. What will you do when you have that spiritual Popeye moment? In Acts 17, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see the Apostle Paul's spiritual Popeye moment. And actually, this is going to be an encouraging story for us because we're going to discover some amazing connecting points, how we could connect with our culture and people in the city of Austin, in our schools and workplaces and neighborhoods who don't know Jesus yet because what was true in Acts 17 is just as true today. So I want, to, I want to start by looking at what happened in Acts 17 up to verse 16 so we can understand a little bit about the context of what is setting up here. So early on in Acts 17, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are in Berea. And they're talking about Jesus, they're making disciples, and they were about to take their next step on their missionary journey to Corinth. And so Paul leaves, he leaves Silas and Timothy behind. And he goes to Athens, and Athens is going to serve as his waypoint, his connecting point. It actually wasn't even on their radar to necessarily like, do any kind of church planting there. And so it was going to be a connecting point where Paul, Timothy, and Silas would connect and then head off to Corinth, which was like the massive city in the Greco-Roman world at that point. That was what was setting up in this moment. Now in verse 16... We're going to see something significant. But we have to understand Athens. We have to understand the cultural context of Athens. Athens was, at this point, and for many, many years, the academic gem in the world. It was the realm of all of the intellectual elites. It was where a lot of the philosophical camps and movements kind of came out of. It's the home place of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno. Like, it was a big, big intellectual hub. So much so that the philosophies that were born out of Athens still significantly influence our culture today. It was said that it would be easier in Athens to find a god than it would be to find a man. At that point, the population of Athens was about 15,000 people or so, and it's historically documented that when Paul was in Athens, there was known to be 30,000 gods. 30,000 gods. That's the scene. An intimidating reality. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was provoked. Say provoked with me. Within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Words are important in this story. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, we wouldn't ever blame Paul, if he went to Athens and checked in at a Holiday Inn, 
right? Because this was just a connecting point. This wasn't necessarily meant to be a strategic part of the mission. But Paul being mission aware, Paul being compelled by the love of Jesus, and Paul understanding the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knows what happens in his life, understands that he knows the truth, and he's already given God his predetermined yes. He doesn't sit back in a hotel room just letting the time pass. He is always in movement with God. He's definitely saying, God, I don't want to waste an opportunity. So instead of checking out, Paul, he gets up, And he goes into the city, and he observes, he listens, he watches, he looks, he eavesdrops. Like, this is so incredibly important. He goes into Athens, and he sees. As he saw, then his spirit was provoked. A storm was brewing inside of him. Now, I want to be honest with you. It's going to be very, very hard for you to ever become spiritually provoked as to the idols in our culture if you're expecting that to only happen here on a Sunday morning. You cannot be provoked unless you go out into the culture, into the city, into your workplaces and get to know people and get to know their hearts and their longings and where they're going. And when Paul went out, he was observing, he was listening, conversing. And as he saw, as he realized, God hit him and his spirit was moved. It was disrupted. It was in turmoil. It was the moment where he says, it's all I can stand. And I can't stand no more. He could have walked around the city a few times, did his little sightseeing tour, and man, they are idolaters here. Go back to Holiday Inn, sit on the couch, and watch Sports Center. But that wasn't what Paul did. His spirit was so provoked, but what he saw, what was ultimately distressing Paul, he was angry about a lie. He was angry. He was provoked about a lie. And friends, that's what idolatry is at its core. It's a lie. It's a distortion of truth. It's a twisting of truth. Idolatry is this proverbial dog chasing the tail and never quite reaching it. It's a lie that says, worship me and I will give you what you're longing for. But it's an absolute lie because it can never give what you're actually hoping and longing for. And Paul was absolutely provoked when he saw the Athenians clearly having the capacity to worship God. When he saw the idols, when he saw how religious they were, his heart was broken because he's seen something that is in common with all people that were all created with the capacity to worship God. But they have given themselves to a lie. And he loves God so much. Paul knows the beauty of Jesus Christ. And he knows God's heart is to love and to save and to redeem. And so he cannot sit idly by. He is moved by this. A city full of idols. And each idol in Athens, and friends, each idol in Austin reveals something to us about the heart of humanity. Every idol is not a means where we shame, guilt, or judge. 
Rather, when we realize the idols that people are running after should actually cause and stir up compassion inside of us because we're realizing they're worshiping, but they're worshiping a lie. And I know the truth that can save them and rescue them and bring them peace. All of humanity are incurably religious. We all do things in ritual in hopes to achieve what we want. He was provoked. It broke him. Paul knew the truth. He knew he could do something about it. He knew he could engage. So he didn't just check out. Verse 17. If you're the type that likes to take notes or underline your scripture, this two-letter word is so important. So. What do you do when you're provoked? So. What's the response? Here's what Paul did. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. He goes to the religious. And then he goes into the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So this word indicates Paul was choosing to live with a predetermined yes. Paul was understanding that my call to follow Jesus is to be on mission first. I am going to go to them. I'm going to walk in their streets. I'm going to listen to their stories. I'm going to observe what moves them. I'm going to look at their longings. Oh my goodness, God, help me. Give me the strength. I need to tell them about you. So he goes into the synagogues and he reasons with Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And then he goes into the cultural hubs, the marketplace where people do life outside of the home. The Starbucks, the H-E-B, the Terry Blacks. If you want to take me to lunch, I'll go. Like he goes to those places every day with the sole intention of being mission aware and telling people about Jesus. Every day. I want you to notice what Paul didn't do, and I'm not trying to be facetious. Paul didn't hand out an invitation to go to a church service in a week to hear about a message. Even though that's good, and we encourage you to do that. He didn't wait for some outreach event to happen for them to come to hear about Jesus. Because Paul knew that if I didn't go, if I don't follow in obedience to this provoking I know they won't come. Friends, li listen, this, like, this is so important. This is where the church has to learn how to flip the script of how we used to think about mission. For so many years, I'm going to talk about this later, but like for so many years, we used to think that like the top thing to do is to make sure that people come through these doors. And when they come through these doors, then they'll hear the message of Jesus. But friends, those days are gone. And yes, it will still happen. And yes, we still encourage that. But that's not the model that Jesus laid out for us. He said, I give you my spirit to empower you to be my witnesses. So that means when you leave here, you get to interact with people that we can never interact with. And every day in the marketplaces, in the schools, in the homes, and in neighborhoods, we get to interact with people who don't know Jesus 
And there are so many connecting points. And I know the fear. I don't know enough. I don't want to be this. I don't want to be seen as this. Friends, when you start to interact with people who don't know about Jesus, you're going to start to realize there is a lot more in common than there isn't. And that's what we get to see here. Every day he goes, urgency dictated his actions. A posture of being mission aware. When you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, when you interact with family members tomorrow, or maybe today, are you living in this God or are you at work? God, open my eyes. God, show me how I can engage. God, who needs to hear about you? Or do you just check in, check out, and hope that maybe you can invite someone to a small group and hope maybe someone can come to church or maybe none of that? Like, this is so important, this posture of being mission aware. And Paul has no clue. God, Paul has no clue who's going to make a decision to follow Jesus. He's just sowing seed liberally. He's talking to anybody who would be willing to talk with him. And it reminds me of the parable that Jesus taught about the seed and the sower, saying, hey, there was this farmer, and he's casting seed indiscriminately. It's just throw them here, throw them here, some here. Some's falling on rocky ground. Some's falling on shallow soil. Some's over here. Some's on this. Almost who implies, like, don't decide who gets to hear. You don't know. You just cast the seed and you share. Some won't receive it. The birds of the air will snap it away. And there are some who will receive it, and they're, like, just all, like, about goose pimples. Like, that felt good. Things got hard. Forget Jesus. You just don't know. But there is some where it will take root and it will happen. Paul's like, I don't know. My spirit's provoked. I'm going to talk to anybody and everybody. Leave the rest for God. Verse 18, he's talking to religious people, and I would say practical agnostics, the people in the marketplace. And then he engages with some of the intellectuals, the philosophical camps, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some of these guys said, the Epicurean specifically said, what does this babbler wish to say? Which is a great word, babbler, because like the meaning of that in the Greek is a bird pecker. It's like, like it, it's like we all know what that is. It's like if you ever been like eat outside, at the, like at a restaurant downtown, and this little sparrow is around there just like trying to peck at all the food. That's what he's calling them. It's like you're just that little bird pecker. In other words, like saying you just go around and you just take little bits and pieces of different thoughts and philosophies and religions, and you're putting it all together. You're a phony. You're a plagiarist. You're a fake. That's what he's, they're saying to him. They're ridiculing him. And then you got the stoic philosophers and the Epicureans. These two philosophical camps are alive and well today, even though we don't call them that. Epicureans believe that everything happens by chance. There is no divine order, no divine purpose, no divine structure. Death is the end. It's ultimate extinction. There's nothing after death. They believe they are gods, but gods are like in some ninth dimension somewhere there, and they really don't care We don't even know if these gods created people. And so in real essence, you can say these guys are kind of like functional atheists. Their chief end, they say the goal of man is pleasure. And so the motto, which we still say today, eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. I feel like I heard that in a Dave Matthews song. (laughs) Materialists. This life is all there is. It matters. So live for the moment. You get yours. Live for the experience. You only live once. 
We have those alive today. Don't tell me what's right and wrong. Then you got the Stoics. They're pantheists. God is in everything and everything is God. They believe that everything that happens is destiny. They're extremely fatalistic. So that means they have really no choice. They have no freedom. And so every, they get real apathetic and they kind of check out of the world. Because it's like, hey, if you're suffering and this happened to you, I can't do nothing about it. I don't even want to show you compassion because it was just the way it was supposed to be. So their chief end is to actually remove anything that would cause them to have emotion or desire. Like that, that's it. It's like they have this epitome of self-control. Pain doesn't bother you. Suffering doesn't bother you. Pleasure doesn't seduce you. We know this. We say this when people don't act emotionally to something. You, you, either you've been called that or you said it to them. Man, they're such a stoic. That's who these guys are. And he's engaging with them. So when you hear Stoic, think Spock from Star Trek. What does this babbler want? And, and you see this, that there's some people who are annoyed. There are some people who are ridiculing him. And there are some people who are interested. Friends, that's the reality. That's the reality. Some people will mock you and ridicule you. Some people will be annoyed with you. But there will be some people who will be wanting to talk more. 19. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. It was a pastime in Athens to, to hear the latest trends and teachings and philosophies. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the... Look, at it, just said it as if I explained... Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Retweeting, liking, posting. Imagine if they had social media. Because we don't do that. So Paul sees an open door. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, which is kind of this crazy spot, across the street from it is one of the main temples of the Athenians. And it's this goddess of, like, just this massive statue. And the, he's sitting there on this seat where, like, on Mars Hill where they would present the latest philosophical thought. So Paul gets this opportunity to go there. And I love what he says. Look at these words. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along, and I observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Men of Athens, people of Athens, I perceive, I see, I appreciate that in every way you are religious. Paul is building a connecting point. Because what Paul just said is true of every single person alive. And he's complimenting them. I perceive this is a word of honor. Like, I've come to learn you. I've come to see and understand and listen to your heart. I perceive that in every way in your life, you are honestly pursuing something in ritual in hopes to attain what you're longing for. I perceive that in every way you are religious. You can have that same conversation with every single person in your life. 
Because every single person in their life has some God at the end that, is, that is, their heart is focused on and, and fixated on and is directing them. So you can say like, hey, you know what? Even though I'm a Christian, we have a lot more in common than you realize. Because you may not see it this way or describe it this way, but if you were to look at your life and the trajectory of your life, if it's money, if it's power, if it's status, if it's relationship, you are in every way religious and going about attaining that. Why? Like that, that's a beautiful thing. He's complimenting them right there. And I love what he doesn't do which is what we struggle so often to do because we're so afraid of like compromising our ethics and our moralities and our you know obedience all this kind of stuff he doesn't go with them and, and shame them he doesn't you could judge them like you Athenians you're all perverse you worship sex and you do this and you do that how could you he doesn't do that he just says hey I see that you have the capacity for worship. So do I. Like that's an interesting thing. Because at some point the Holy Spirit will do the convicting. And yes, at some point he will call that out. But Paul wanted to have this conversation. I see that you guys are inherently created to worship. So am I. Common ground. As I walked around your city... Passed by 29,999 altars, and I bumped into this one. Weird. Can you explain to me what this altar of the unknown God is? Like, can, let's talk about that. Like, why is that there? Is that your just in case altar? Like, just in case, like, what you're pursuing in life doesn't work out, or maybe you realize you were up the wrong ladder, but you're like, I had this one here just in case. Is this the altar that's like kind of like the, the unconscious part of you that knows there's more and longing for more and you're starting to realize that what you're pursuing isn't there? Can, can you tell me about this unknown altar thing? Well, this is the God I want to tell you. Like the God you're actually worshiping there on that altar is the God that I know. And that's the God I want to talk to you about. I love what Paul did there. Because I do believe, I, I, I have not talked to anybody yet who has not actually got to the point where they said, they're, they're, yep, I'm truly satisfied with the direction I'm going and the purpose I have and the desire. Yep, I have enough money. Yep, I have this. There's no one that's ever at that point outside of Jesus. There's always this restlessness. And so when I start to ask them, it's like, do you wish or long for more? They're like, yeah, that's the unknown altar. You can go, that thing, the, the unsettling in there, everybody has it. Everybody has it. This is theology. Everybody's created in the image of God. Everybody has eternity in their hearts. Everybody has divine DNA in them. So everybody isn't conquered or conquered, isn't at rest or at peace until they put their faith in Jesus. So you can come in in confidence knowing that everybody's longing for something until they find Jesus. Isaiah 55, 1 through 2, because this is how Paul's going to angle this. I love how Isaiah says this. Like, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. This is like our God. And then here's the reality of all the idols. Why do you spend your money, your effort, your energy, your resource, and with that which is not bread, that won't satisfy. And why do you labor for which it doesn't satisfy? Listen to me. 
this is how Paul starts to come in. He's speaking to agnostics. This unknown God is where the word agnosticism comes from. That unknown is the root word for agnostic. That's why I say there are really no true atheists. Because I do believe even atheists has a God at the end. They're just without full knowledge. And so essentially, they're agnostic. So Paul then goes, all right. I need to tell you something about this God because what this God offers is not another religion. It's a relationship. And he goes on to start talking about the greatness of God, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. This God is not created by humanity. God is not made. He's not an act of fiction. He's not a concoction of cultural stories that have been passed on through time. It's not a hodgepodge of different religious concepts crammed into one. He is the maker of humanity and everything in it. He is the point of origin. He is the sole originator of all things. All idols, all idols are created and they will all cease to exist the moment humanity stops worshiping it. We can stop worshiping God and God will continue to forever exist because God exists outside of time. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's the one who started it all. By him and through him, all things were made. This is the God I'm talking to you about. That's the God on that unknown altar that's just like drawing you and gnawing at you. God is not the projection of humanity. He's greater than humanity because everything comes from him. We can't control him. We can't tame him. We can't put him in a box. Further, verse 25 nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is the God who is the giver of life and needs nothing from us. All idols need interaction with humanity in order to exist. God is self-sustaining. He is not a taker. He is a giver. All Idols are takers. They're not givers. They say they're givers, but they're lying to you. And that's what provoked Paul. So when people are pursuing all sorts of different things in your life, you know they're entrapped by a lie. God is the giver. Idolatry or idols demand things of you. You have to appease them, and they're fickle and, and capricious. You like, don't know. Like, if you die, would you be saved? You don't know. They could be having a bad day that moment. The God that I'm sharing with you, he's the one who gives. He pours out blessing and abundance and fullness of life. He makes the sun rise on the good and evil, the rain fall on the good and evil, so that people would find their way to him. Not only that... Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God and perhaps fuel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. 
The God that I'm telling you, the unknown God altar that you have, he is the God who draws us to himself. And he's not remote, he's not different, nor is he distant. He's pursuing us. You see, pagan gods in the Greco-Roman world, like specifically the gods on Mount Olympus, like they wanted the humanity to serve them and to do things for them. And they tried their best to avoid humanity at all possible. They didn't care. They're aloof. They're indifferent, just like every idol in this world. They don't care for you. They don't care for you. Money doesn't care for you. Your position doesn't care for you. What happens if you lose it all? Our appearance and relationships. Like, like, what happens if you go bald? Hopefully my wife still loves me. <laughs> Thumbs up. God is in pursuit of his creation. God created the world and he put people in places and in certain times and certain geographies and locations because God's domain isn't over a territorial area. He's sovereign over all of his creation. But he created people to live in that era and that era and that era and that time and that location and that place. Why? So that they would seek after him. And Paul in verse 27, talks about like the sobering picture of humanity apart from God. Perhaps, perhaps they will feel their way toward him and find him. Perhaps. So this is like, this is a really beautiful word image. And like, have you ever like been in a room and it was like super bright and it was like, you know, dark outside, night, sun's down, and you walk out, and it's like dark. There's no lights on, and you walk out, and it's like super dark, and you're kind of like, where's that light switch? I know it's there. Anybody ever stumble into anything in the dark, right? Like fumble around. Like this is the image that Paul has given humanity. It's like perhaps they will find their way towards him. It's like humanity is stumbling in the dark looking for the light switch, and sometimes they stumble and they think it's it. Like I remember in college, oh my goodness, we used to play this prank. It was so awesome. Our, our house had two floors and the bathroom was on a top floor. And when people <laughs> would shower, college students, okay, college students. Like when people would take a shower, we would break into that door, steal their towel, and then we would unscrew every light bulb in the hallway and in the house and so as they're in the shower like their eyes are acclimated to the bright light and so when they walk out of the bathroom it's complete darkness and we would strategically hide on the steps and so whenever they would come out we would just get them it was awesome that's the image perhaps they will find their way in the darkness but what I love is what he says he's like and yet he's not far. He's not far. He's pursuing them. He's, he's the creator. He's the life giver. He's the one who's seeking us while we're stumbling and looking for hope and purpose and meaning in the darkness. We're not living here by some cosmic fluke. There is specificity. God has structured our lives and our placements and when we would live and where we would live in order to attract us to him. Paul then continues, he's like, okay, I'm going to quote for you 
two of your rock stars. Paul brings in pop culture here. He starts to quote two um, Roman and uh, Greco-Roman poets. And a lot of times, like, we quote this and go, ah, scripture, it's into scripture, but it's actually written by a Greco-Roman. In him, we live and move and have our being. Like, that's from Epimenides of Crete. He wrote that. And even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He's taking these, these truths that people have in their longings and saying, listen, see the divine DNA that's in them? They're even talking about these types of things. And then he goes on to say in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What Paul is doing is saying there is dignity in humanity. So much so that when we give ourselves to idolatry, we not only degrade and distort the truth of God, we degrade and distort the truth of humanity. God is our origin. He created one man. We are all created in the image of God. We were created to worship him alone and then to give ourselves to anything lesser than that. To some created thing and then for us to go, you're my God. It's not only to degrade God, but it's to degrade humanity and then evil unleashes. Paul is establishing human dignity. Being God's offspring, he created all of us. We're all created in the image of God. He's all in pursuit of every single one of us. Because of this, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now because you know and you've heard and it's no longer able to be overlooked that you're gonna, if you continue to pursue idols, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Change your mind about God. And as you change your mind about God, change your direction. Move towards God. Act in a way. Change your mind. Move this way. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. In other words, he's saying God is the only one who is fully just, who fully can like, judge what is good and what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. And he is fully righteous. He is appointed a day when that will happen by a man whom he's appointed, Jesus. And now this, he has given assurance that Jesus has conquered death and has put everything underneath the dominion of his feet. Like He did it because he raised him from the dead. He's saying to them, it's like, guys, listen, Epicureans, I know you believe that when you die, that's it. And some of you Stoics, like, you believe that when you die, you get recycled and you reincarnate somewhere else. But listen, this God who created everything has appointed a day when judgment will happen and there's a way to be made right with God. And it's not by appeasing the gods, it's by receiving the gift of salvation through what Jesus did on the death on the cross and the resurrection. That's what he's saying to them. Well, verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, because usually that's oftentimes when people start going, you lost me at resurrection. Some mocked. 
But others said, we'll hear you again about this. In other words, let's keep talking about this. This is really fun. They weren't genuine. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysus and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Some mocked, some were annoyed, some were like, hey, let's keep talking, this is fun. But some met Jesus, began to know Jesus, and began to become a disciple. Powerful. Because Paul wasn't sharing with them a religion, but a relationship with God. He gave a powerful sermon, friends, but it wasn't in a church. He preached some powerful truths, but it wasn't at an outreach event. People came to meet, know, and follow Jesus, not in a Bible study. It's because Paul went to where the people were. He went and observed, listened, interacted, allowed his spirit to get provoked, and then he acted. He went first. I have a burden and a passion for Muslims, and it started many years ago when I was a college student, when I used to do mission work in London um, with Operation Mobilization, and we would do evangelism with Muslims. And the more I got to know them and befriend them, the more I just, my heart broke for them, because I was like, man, we're so close to the truth. We're so close to the truth. There's so many things, but there's like so many obstacles in there. And I remember, um, uh, I, I try, I try, that's the operative word. I try to be mission aware, where I go and do things. I'm like, okay, God, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I be, like, show me what you're doing? And I remember one time at the gym, I met this guy named Ali. And Ali was a Muslim, and we, we hit it off. We became really good friends. And I determined that I wanted to get to know him and his family and his culture and his religion instead of me just going, okay, hey, you're a Muslim. Let me tell you about Jesus and why you're wrong. It was just like, hey, let's hang out. Let's talk. Let's get to know each other. And we became weightlifting buddies. And I remember one time he invited me over um, to his house. And he would do this on occasion. He would invite me over, and, and he would surprise me because then he would have other friends there, other Muslims there, and he wanted to have a conversation about Christianity. And I was like, man, I'm getting ganged up on, right? But I remember one time he invited me over to have a traditional Saudi meal, which basically meant no silverware. And I looked foolish, just, just straight up foolish. And I remember in that moment, like, my spirit was so provoked and because I, I dearly did love Ali, and, and I knew time was running out and how we would be able to engage because we're going to go our separate ways. And, and I was like, Ali, I, you just got to know about Jesus. Like, let, let me just lay it out flat. I was like, dude, you and I were both created to worship, kind of following this roadmap. Like, he created us. Like, this is who he is, right? We, we agree. And it wasn't just Ali. It was Ali and his buddies. And we agree. And I was just working it all through, and I was just like, man— he came for you, right? He, he died for you. Allah is all about what you can do for him. And you don't know if he's going to love you, if he's going to accept you. You don't know. But we know about Jesus because God demonstrated his love this way. He sent Jesus. He's not a prophet. You have to know that, Ali, right? You have to. And he, also, I remember Ali saying to me, he's like, Brandon, I so badly want to believe Jesus. I, so, I see it. I can feel it, but I can't. And all of a sudden, it was the cultural obstacle. You don't understand. My family is a royal family. If they find out, they'll disown me. 
They'll never provide for me. I can never go home and my life will be threatened. We would hang out a few times after that, but then we, again, we moved and all that kind of stuff. And, and I, I don't know if he ever accepted Jesus. I have no idea. He died in a car accident. I pray he did. But what I do know for certain, if I didn't go to Ali, I know Ali would have never come to church. I know that. If I didn't move towards him, he would have never have come into church. Friends, this is the script we have to change. There's people in your life that you know, and that's why you don't invite them, wouldn't come to church. So what do we do? Write them off? See, in, in, when the church was prominent in culture, that strategy worked, and it worked well for a season, where the idea was if we get them into the doors, they will hear about Jesus, and then we can get them plugged into community, then we can equip them and then send them back out. Well, that's good and all, but this is one hour of the week. And we get to go out since. And so the model used to be we do worship. We've got to get them in. We've got to have the invites, which is okay. We encourage you. Invite people to church. Invite people to church. Absolutely. And people can meet Jesus in the church. Absolutely. But this was the model that we tend to think through. If we get them into the church, maybe they'll hear about Jesus, then we'll get them into a community, and then we'll send them out. Where the biblical model and what we see here in Acts 17 is completely flipped because Paul in the early church knew, I will give you the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit will empower you to be my witnesses. You can't witness to those who don't know Jesus here. Unless you invited and they came with you. We witness together, but we are to witness there. So this script has to flip. We have to go mission first, then community. That's why I love we got two names at the end of Acts 17. We got these two people who are now in community, and now they're moving into worship. And worship is the fuel for mission. We have to flip this. We have to flip it. Church growth these days, I'm on a soapbox, I'm so sorry. But church growth these days is not by people coming to faith in Jesus. Churches are growing by transfer growth. I won't, you know, we won't be a church that we say, nope, you're from our church, get out of here. Like, We won't do that. That's just rude unless they left the church for all the wrong reasons. But man, we want to be a church that grows because we're helping people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. But unless we go into our cultural hubs and observe and perceive that in many ways they're religious, that in many ways you have a capacity for God and we're on the same page, let me tell you about that God that you worship that you don't know. So I want to give you quickly some practical tools of how you can engage in culture. Real quick, get provoked. Get provoked. You cannot get provoked by the idols in our culture by staying in the church building because you're not going to see the effects of it. Get provoked. See it. Feel it. 
hear it, talk to people about it. How many of you watched The Chosen? If you haven't heard about it, I encourage you to do so. Awesome. They came out with this thing called Unfiltered. Go to YouTube, Chosen Unfiltered. And they invited a bunch of millennials who aren't Christians to watch the first season of Chosen. And you get to hear their stories, their backgrounds, their church hurt, the way they think, the way they process. It's a good way to get provoked. I watched it, and again I went, oh my goodness, we need to reach the next generations. Because what you see are them being open and receptive to Jesus. Somebody's got to tell them. Get provoked. Second thing, talk to people what's true of all of us. We're all created in the image of God. Our greatest dignity as humans is the Imago Dei. Talk to people that God created all of us. We are created in his image, which means we are inherently religious, that in every way we worship, we worship. How do you know what an idol is? If a guy in your neighborhood has an A&M flag outside the house and they open the garage and you see A&M stuff everywhere and on the TV, you see the A&M game playing from 10 years ago, that's their God. It's like... When you interact with people, I know you can start to sense and see what it is that's calling and pursuing in their hearts. Talk about the things that are in common. The longings. Ask them about the, like, how are these idols actually giving them what they're longing for? So that's how we, then third, gently expose the lie. Gently. Gently expose the lie. Sometimes you have to be a little bit more blunt. But the vast majority of the time, share it in gentleness. The kindness of God leads to repentance. Gently show them, hey, how is your pursuit of wealth going? They just start to extract it out. Share truths about our God, the creator of all things. Created every, everybody, everywhere. He's not far from us. He's in pursuit of us. And then last, talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. Because that's the stumbling block. That's it. There's one way to God, and it's through Jesus. And it's by receiving the gift of salvation. His grace, we receive it by faith. That's important. Where's the greatness of God best displayed? Jesus. Where's the love of God best demonstrated? Jesus. How do we know that God has drawn us? Jesus. Is Jesus who he says he is? And who do you say that he is? Those aren't that intimidating of questions. We just need to get in the world, get into our culture, but not of it. And let's just be honest, sometimes we're not provoked by the things in this world because maybe we've buddied up with it. Maybe the idols are also kind of like our bedfellows. So maybe we got to do that process of repentance, but...
it's not that hard to move towards people. We got to get in the world in order for us to have our spiritual Popeye moment. It's all I can stand. I can't stand it no more. Here's mine. Judges 2.10. There arose after Joshua and his generation another generation that did not know the Lord or the things of the Lord. Then a 350 year of darkness ensued in the nation of Israel and it's hallmarked by the last verse everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's all I can stand. I can't stand it no more. I do not want to see a generation not know Jesus. So as we end this time, I, I want to encourage you, just close your eyes, and I want you to think about some of the questions that I'm going to ask. Just, just answer these questions in honesty. Why did God send Jesus? Why did Jesus die on the cross? And why did Jesus resurrect and conquer death? Look at what God has done, not just for you, but for everybody. Look at what God gave just so we could be with him. Look at how God created everyone in the image of God. Everyone has dignity. Look at those in your life right now, in your mind, of those who don't know Jesus, and see how they are chasing after lies and stumbling in the darkness. Will you now ask the Holy Spirit to provoke you so that you will say, that's all I can stand. I can't stand it no more. I want to encourage you to use this song of worship as a means of a prayer and declaration of our intent to live sent.